Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. I'm Edie Madev. I'm going to be reading selections from Crawl Space, a novel I wrote in order to know what it is to inhabit the mind of evil. Crawl Space follows Emile Pouquet, a war criminal responsible for deporting thousands in 1940s France. It's 1999, and he's come to lay rest the demons that have plagued him. While in his beloved hometown of Fignet, a reunion of refugees and international reporters is taking place. Emile, while getting caught up in their midst, must also reckon with the memories that plague him. While he's sucked into their center, he'll end up encountering the worst betrayal he's ever known. You think you know me, and still my name slips away on your tongue. You've probably seen me countless times, but you never noticed. There has been surgery on my face, yes, to disguise me. Yet I live in your pile of clippings. I exist in your mind as a niggling question, a thing troubling your sleep certain nights. I understand your dilemma. You would not give it the importance of a dilemma, but having been on your side, I understand how denial becomes an easier route. In school, they taught us that the ninth century considered the devil to be in charge of bad timing. Here, at the end of the 20th century, people say the devil is capable of taking up permanent residence in certain people, thousands simultaneously, including within my former colleagues. Many have also hinted that the devil lives in me, just as my own father believed. What I mean is that if my father still lived and you had the chance to ask him, he would say the hump on my face, no longer there, of course, was the first sign of badness. My hump, which caused such suffering in my early years, even after my father grew quite obsessed with my disfigurement and had the thing sliced off, believing the hump both caused and flaunted my innate evil. Hump or no hump, I still think timing matters most when deciding what is evil. You can't have a belief without having been influenced by timing. My father was influenced by his era, I by mine. If nowadays anyone thinks the devil is in charge of bad timing, wouldn't I at this late date be excused for having been born too early or too late? An accident. Can a lone human misfire timing his birth wrong? My guess is the ninth century might have been kinder to me. Now people tend to think the devil is in charge of many departments. As they say, the devil is a multitasker. Despite my advanced age, I have heard that word as I have heard so many words, all those young and unhappy modern words used against me. My first thwarting, or upset, or whatever we wish to call the kind of event which sets one on a certain unrecoverable course, came during my eighth birthday, which I thought I would celebrate by finally being able to ride our stable hand's gray mare. Instead of sending me off on a horse, 
My father had sent for the barber of Milazzo, a man I'd known about for years. The barber was a Sicilian with a penciled-in mustache, a man who traveled through our region, and whom all the children of Esfore thought of as a stink-fish ogre. I will admit that I'd heard such scary tales about the barber that, as he pulled out his towel and needle, his matchbox and lye and alcohol, beginning the operation procedures, I could not keep myself from shuddering, which, of course, helped nothing. At one point, I cried openly. Only the fear of being beaten made me restrain myself. For all that, the barber was deft enough. He said something that sounded like gumbo gumba as he iced my cheek. He said ravenissimo as he injected a numbing solution near my ear. Using one of the great shiny curved knives, which had already starred prominently in my nightmares, he sliced the hump off in one fell swoop. It was not my father's fault that the man was not the most scrupulous. My father could not have foreseen that gangrene would set in, the darkly poisoned vein leading down my neck toward my heart. How, in the week after the operation, I lay feverish in our carriage, usually reserved for fancier occasions, watching the sturdy back of Charlot, our stable hand, hearing him urge the horses on as we traveled a rutted shortcut to the Bordeaux Hospital, where my name, Pouquet, made the nurses admit me immediately. When the doctors saw my infection, they grew excited about trying a newfangled bitter sulfur cure on me, and the next morning, pronouncing its success, they dismissed me. Home at last, exhausted, traumatized by the sulfur and all the amputees we'd seen at the hospital, I stood at the woodpile, my innards boiling and heaving. How to say this delicately? Charlot and I emptied the contents of our stomachs that he was as trustworthy as a mother, that he had not let me down, sealed us together. As he later soothed me with a weak bullion, treating it with a snap of wine to help it go down better, I felt all the more sure he was not just someone to count on, but also my first true friend. If a child is left to raise himself mostly alone, it is easy for him to develop the certainty that he has gifts both fantastic and real. During my childhood with the hump, Charlot and his folk wisdoms had aided this certainty, often telling me that the albatross of my deformity was an asset. He believed I'd carried clairvoyance in my hump, and that this gift enabled me, for example, to bring home the cows at night. Not a dim man, but certainly never called a genius. Charlot would often bring in his own dreams for me to parse, dreams in which large animals figured, dreams which, if I squeezed my eyes tight enough, could make a message appear. I would tell him what I saw, whether it was that a distant cousin might soon pay an unexpected visit, or that my father would decide in some unprecedented show of beneficence, highly uncharacteristic, to offer a raise in the stable hand's annual retainership. And more often than not, these events would come to pass, 
and so my confidence in that moment of squeezing my eyes would grow. Because of Charlot's belief in the hump's magic, both of us were afraid that some good fortune would leave after the barber had sliced it off. Yet, humpless, I thought I might still find a way to channel some mysterious force, and I banked upon this possibility. Even though Charlot stopped asking me to interpret his dreams, and though my travails at school continued. When I returned to school, my face shorn of its hump, a raised shuring the fingerprint showing where the adults had cut, sewn and unstitched me, I did not imagine that I'd stand to be taunted in such a callous fashion by Ariane. Five years older than I was, she was smart enough, even back then, to focus on the vanity of my operation. As if he thinks this makes him normal, she called out. Faithful to doctrine, her tribe of followers echoed this in girlish cacophony. One can understand if I say here that children's shrieks, especially those of girls, are still as painful a noise to me as it is for someone else to hear, say, nails scratching across a blackboard, an insect scrabbling across a floor, a cell door slamming shut, or, let us say, the rattle of keys on the guard's belt as he walks away. All of these lonely noises I do not wish on my worst enemies. The shock of her tyranny rested in the main fact that, for years before the removal of the hump, Ariane, she was then still just Ari, had been adept at ignoring me. Who had I been to her? Just another six-year-old, a seven-year-old, another boy in short pants. Though she was much older, she was only a couple of classes ahead of mine. For what this is worth, I had never paid too much attention to her, beyond shivering whenever I saw her glassy blue, slightly bulging eyes, thinking her eyes could see through walls. But mostly, I did not think about her eyes, and I did nothing outlandish, too busy adopting myself to my life circumstances. Like any boy, if within a fairly limited sphere, I'd learned how to line up various comforts for myself, all good as marbles. I had my friendship with Charlot, for one thing, and also the opportunity to spy on the Polish nursemaid next door. For a certain kind of boy, such pleasures can be enough. Their limits are never questioned. Once, before my operation, among her friends, but without showing the specific malice she possessed later on, Ari had thrown pebbles at my feet, making me dance away from the girls. In her defense, this was not an extreme act. Conceivably, she might have been cruel to any boy. After that, however, I kept a careful distance from Ari, tabs on her whereabouts. When she was alone as we passed each other on the road, she ignored me as if I were a bit of stray tumbleweed. Yet when I first learned the word cruelty, somewhere in my seventh year, I imagined Ari, the heedless economy of the girl who'd thrown stones at my feet, her braids bouncing about on her shoulders. It was true that after the stones at the feet episode, there had been another moment in the year before I'd had the operation, when she'd been especially cruel. 
One arbitrary day she'd accosted me in front of her friends, chasing me until she was victorious. She sat upon me, holding my wrists down. Is that such trauma? I must have been seven or so, and though she was not a big girl, she had the strength or will to keep me down in a corner of the schoolyard where none of our teachers could see. Surprise worked in her favor. Plus, she had the gift of an actress in a gas-lit theater. In front of her friends, she knew how to suspend the moment to its maximum, how to lean forward slowly, the same lean forward she would perform on my desk at the prefecture years later. Finally, a young girl with flair, she kissed the hump on my face. This had the desired effect. The laughter around me was like tangling river grass, immobilizing me until I came to, enough to push her off. Of course, this moment was hardly the worst of the humiliations she wished to visit upon me in life, only among the first. But my childish hope was that the surgery would grant me an invisibility suit I could wear, good enough to hide me from all the girls of the world. I'd hoped the hump's removal would leave me free to travel everywhere without friction. It was, however, this admission of weakness or vanity, which must have marked me, I suppose, so that I became her fabulous favorite. Once Ari saw me in the schoolyard, a boy with hump removed, the scar its only memory, I seemed to have entered into a lifelong slavery to the girl. In front of everyone in the schoolyard, she began talking, her voice hypnotic and enthralling. Though I stood next to Izzy, my first best friend, a Jewish boy from the village, my shock must have made me amnesiac, so that later only he, Izzy, could recount the moment's details, his damnable perspective stripping me of all rights to my own recall. So I don't know whether I am the one who remembered Ari's gray socks falling, or if it was Izzy who saw the coffee stain on her white pinafore, or whether Izzy was the one to note how her eyes were so determinedly blue you'd think the sky had entered into a pact with her. She started as a genius would, in a roundabout way, with patience to spare. Doesn't Emile's face, she asked a group of girls and smaller boys at a break in a breathless game of tag, doesn't it make him look like Luke? Luke, exhaled one of the smaller boys admiringly. The village idiot Luke! She was smart. She mentioned Luke to trigger me to respond. That was Izzy's later theory. But when I looked at her, or as I remember looking at her, according to Izzy's telling, she was such a potentate in front of the salmon-colored bricks of our schoolhouse. Her nostrils, such imperious fluttering slits, and her chin, so high, carried authority. I stood paralyzed, as if waiting for a bell's final chime. I think I felt a strange prickle of happiness in the moment when I recognized her power. Because the understanding came in a flash. To give in to her would be like entering a warm bath, a defeat pleasurable in its ease, a fate fulfilled, and thus not without its delights. Later, 
Some would say our France fell in a similar way, but I had no truck with any of those ideas. We didn't mean to give in. Anyway, what I knew about Luke the village idiot was common knowledge. Luke being an overgrown teenager, already grotesque to us. He had a special fondness for running his hands up inside the skirts of girls in church. We all knew this was bad, if not exactly why. He liked to lay belly up on the wooden platform under the pews, hands going wild. But he'd been spared jail because of his parents and their slobbery ways, parents who were our local butchers and hence useful, whom even my father deemed expert with a side of ham. Since they were the only butchers in Cousac, our village outside the big town of Fignet, and the parents loved their idiot boy, his behavior mostly went ignored. Most people forgave the butchers for Luke, as Izzy's mother did, as my own father did, calling the son an unfortunate curse. Strangest of all was that because of his perversity, Luke had received a special pew in which to sit while in church. His name was engraved on a bronze plaque, and anyone who saw him stationed elsewhere was to gently lead him back to his rightful place. In this way, we tolerated our idiots. But being compared to Luke in front of everyone, the scar still smarting on my cheek stumped me. I may have thought myself evil and made the world into a more orderly and trustworthy place if I thought my hump the logical outcome of some badness lodged in my core. But no one had ever called me an idiot. A concealed devil pushed my chest right then, paralyzing me, making it harder to breathe. Ari was going on about my vain attempts to look normal. And there, not at all far from me, were boys I knew. You know how it is with an old man. Yesterday's memories feel like today's. So here it is where my memory returns full force. I am able to remember how strange I found it that my erstwhile friends did not become one boy arrow of uprising, rushing her in defense of me. And I knew these boys had skipped stones along the river with them, tortured flies, played at war. Now, as if they barely knew how to pronounce my name, they stood by, no smidgen of action left in any of them. I tried to concentrate on the boy I thought both most friendly and popular, Denise, certain he would step forward, come to my aid. But Denise had gone feeble, hiding under his cap, hands clenching and unclenching. And was Ari such a priestess, because her father was a schoolmaster? It seemed the sun hung with greater significance behind her. Her words at noon held and threw me down as if I were a broken toy. We all waited for a clue to fall in our midst, to tell us how to react. But she was the moral cue, too great a force to withstand. Everyone knew you were never supposed to make fun of a cripple, and there she had done it openly. The great martyrs of France have died for lesser causes, we often prayed it forth unthinkingly in our history and civics lessons. And there I was, some kind of composting of both invalid and cripple. Boys could tease one another, but for Ari to point out my deformity and also Luke's, this ordinarily would be called a fishwife's bad manners. 
so it was understandable that no one offered a defense of me. What she said was simply too low, and it took our tongues. Ari squealed with disgust. Look at him, she said, breaking our trance. He cut the thing off his cheek. Emil thinks he can be normal now. Her hand held the jut of her hip, a cipher just beginning to hint of the future. Some of the other girls took up her words, and if I can still see their faces correctly, they looked relieved. There was a rhythm to such moments, and the curtain was falling on this one. We'd had a culmination, a cycle of disgrace closed, a sentence pronounced. As if Emile thinks he can be normal now, they chanted, skipping away happily enough. From this account, it is probably already clear how Ari was one of those prodigies of cruelty. Her genius lived in what seemed to be her impartiality, though as a child, of course, I felt all her force directed solely at me. And only Izzy said anything. Only he came forward. It was a mark of how outcast I was that only the Jew, with his stupid grin and interloper's bravery, someone I'd ignored, would want to protect me. If I believe his later story, Izzy took my hand once the girl started to skip away. If his story is true at all, Izzy's was the only hand offered for me to take. What I do remember without Izzy's telling of it is how heavy the slingshot in my pocket suddenly became when I'd whittled and planned on giving as a gift to that perfect boy Denise a slingshot I would end up giving to the highly imperfect Izzy. Later that afternoon, Charlot, the stable hand, said to me when I told him the story, Ah, but did you cry? I said I hadn't. You stayed without running away. He was in the business of establishing facts, and I did not mind. His facts always led somewhere. So I told him I had stayed. During all this, Izzy stood right by me. I heard everything, volunteered Izzy. Emile didn't cry. Then you were brave, concluded the stable hand. He had his own burly logic, and it had served him well in life. That logic, along with my new friendship with the Jew, the only part Charlot couldn't understand, made up my consolation prize and the prize was almost enough. I took comfort in it, held it close as an infant does with the favored rag. Then you were brave. A simple enough statement. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit www.kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.